And so let us hear God's word, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you do despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. Well, as we uh, come to this section, we come to this topic of justice. And uh, as we consider justice in our own land, uh, certainly we have principles of justice that are based on the scriptures. And for uh, many years, many decades, uh, we've seen justice, uh, blind justice, equal justice, fair justice in a variety of ways. Certainly it's not been perfect. You think especially of the minorities, the blacks, uh, and uh, years gone past not receiving this kind of justice. Um, and Obviously, as you go to other countries, you don't see this uh, as well. But we've come to the point, unfortunately, in our culture today, that if you're going to have justice, um, you're going to have to have a lot of money to ensure that it'll take place. And we, unfortunately, are seeing justice selectively administered. Some people are um, uh, let off the hook. Other people... Every bit of the law is thrown against them. And so if I were to go to court today, I'm not sure I'd receive fair and equal and blind justice, which, of course, is unfortunate. Well, with this idea in mind here, we come now to this section of Paul. Now, Paul, of course, has been expounding on our sin. This is his broader point. And since we have all turned from God, as he's described in chapter 1, he punishes us daily with sexual kinds of sins and social kinds of sins. Instead of loving God in our neighbor, we replace God with something else and then hate our neighbor in one way or another. And yet, of course, many of us insist that we're not that bad, that we're still a good person. We're certainly better than that person over there. But as we come here into chapter 2, Paul will not allow us to cling to our pride. And he begins by saying the good people are actually just a bunch of hypocrites because we hold others to a certain standard, and yet we allow ourselves excuses for why we do not uphold the same standard. Paul has introduced then the main point of this chapter 
as we saw last time in verse 2, and that is God is impartial, and all that he does is according to truth. And then in verse 3, we saw the good people will not escape the judgment. In verse 4, he says the good people think that the blessings that they receive are due to their goodness. But actually, they're despising God's goodness when this happens. And the good things that come upon us, when uh, we boast, we're actually storing up more wrath for the day of judgment. Instead, as we read from a variety of passages last week, when good things happen, it should lead us to repentance because we don't deserve any good thing. Well, Paul now expands on these ideas and comes really to the main point of this chapter, and that is the impartiality of God, and in particular, on the day of judgment. So, we ended verse 5 by talking about that day of wrath and about the judgment of God. And so verse 6 then continues the thought, who will render to each one according to his deeds? The who here obviously is referring to God. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and um, frankly he could quote from uh, a number of different places. This is a familiar truth that we see in the scriptures. Now, most commentators say probably the one that is closest to his words comes from Psalm 62. So let's turn there here a moment and uh, look at this psalm and then these, uh, these ideas. So in Psalm 62, <clears throat> we see here this psalm of David. Let me just read it uh, briefly for us. To the chief musician, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Say law. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. All right, obviously there's a lot here in this psalm, but notice that the overall point is trusting God. Not trusting ourselves, but trusting God. Now here it's specifically in this time of need when the wicked are prospering and speaking evil things. But notice how David ends. I trust in the Lord because I know he will judge justly. He will render according to what they have done. Notice how verse Uh, 11 talks about God's power, and verse 12 talks about God's mercy. This is his covenant love, chesed's the word here. 
And in this last line, the pronoun's repeated. It's very emphatic here. For you, you render to each one according to his work. So, you know, in, in the midst of our hardship, when people are speaking against us and so forth, okay, note the, uh, if you are emotional ending, you, God, judge according to each one's work. And so God is fair. God is just. He is impartial, is David's point, in this particular context. Okay. But this idea of trusting certainly fits with Paul's broader point here in Romans. And so that's partly why um, some people think this is probably the specific passage that Paul is quoting. But there are others. Let's turn here a moment to Proverbs chapter 24. <clears throat> in Proverbs 24, uh, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 24, verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. In other words, help people in need, right? If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? So if you see someone in need, but you don't help them, and you claim, verse 12, oh, I didn't know. Um, <clears throat> God knows if you're telling the truth or not. He knows our thinking. He knows what's going on in us. He knows our souls. And he will render us, uh, according to our works, he will render justice. And so notice when God judges justly, it's not just outward behaviors, but even what's going on within us. Now, I mentioned that this is a familiar truth, so I'm going to read some more passages, and feel free to follow if you want, but at least listen here. This next one is from Job 34 and uh, verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Okay. <clears throat> so obviously it's the same point. God never judges unjustly. It's uh, from uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. Uh, we're familiar with verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the answer to the question is verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So note again, God knows the heart, and he will judge accordingly. In uh, Jeremiah 32, this is verse 19. God is speaking. You are, or excuse me, Jeremiah is speaking to God. You are great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so, unlike human courts and evidence, they don't necessarily know everything. But God does. And because he does, <clears throat> he judges justly. Then in Ezekiel, uh, this is chapter 18 and verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. 
God is not merely judging according to the unbeliever's deeds. But here specifically, Ezekiel says this in regard to Israel and their own deeds. Uh, In Ezekiel 33, verse 17, Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. And so here they were concerned that because of the sins of their ancestors, that's why they are being punished. But God is saying, yes, that's generally true, but I'm judging you for your deeds, specifically. All right, well, lest we think this is an Old Testament idea, we obviously have Romans chapter 2, verse 6, but listen here now the words of Jesus. This is Matthew 16, verse 27. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And so Jesus specifically is the one who will render this justice on the day of judgment. In 1 Corinthians, this is uh, chapter 3 and verse 8. So this is similar to Ezekiel. Again, it's not just those out there, but this is in the church, Paul says. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so even the leaders of the church are going to be judged according to their deeds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Again, not just the unbeliever, but everybody. Um, In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. In this one, Paul is uttering an imprecation, right? He's wanting God to judge this man according to what he has done. And then from Revelation, first of all, this is Revelation 2 verse 23 Jesus is speaking to the church in Thyatira, and he says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Obviously, again, this is speaking of the church specifically, and note the inward judgment that is taking place, not just outward actions. In chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You know, I'm sure you can't remember much of what you did three days ago or 30 years ago. But everything we do is recorded. Every action every thought, every word. And God will judge according to every one of those things. Then in chapter 22 and verse 12, 
Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Those are the words of Jesus. Now, I've given you about a dozen here. I could give you dozens more. This idea is found over and over and over again in the scriptures, in both the Old and the New Testaments. This is a key standard throughout scripture. God will not judge arbitrarily. He will judge based on what a person does. And not just outwardly, but the motives of the heart too. God does not judge based on hearsay. God does not judge based on testimony from somebody else. God does not judge based on circumstantial evidence. These are things that we do, but not God. He doesn't need anyone to testify and witness to things that we've said and done because he knows. He knows everything. And so God, therefore, judges impartially, without bias, according to the truth. And you might say all the truth. God does not give anyone a free pass. He is not partial. But unfortunately, that's what we normally live with, isn't it? And some of it is necessary. We're humans, right? We don't know everything. We don't know what's in uh, somebody's mind or heart unless they tell us. And so some of this is understandable. But, of course, because of our sin, it is unfortunately more and more um, rare for us to see actual justice take place. Okay. We have DAs that will not punish people. They just let them go. This cash bail and so forth. They just revolving door and so on. Okay. Maybe you heard about this guy who shot a cop the other day. And he's like, oh, it's fine. I'll get out in 30 days anyway. Okay. This is what we're dealing with. We have the Department of Justice who will punish pro-lifers for standing at the doors of an abortion clinic. But BLM and Antifa rioters are not punished. We have some in January 6th being punished extensively, even with very uh, bizarre legal claims. And others, they, they may have been the biggest culprits, but they're not being punished at all. I mentioned briefly about this uh, in Sunday school this morning. This is called lawfare. War against people using the law, using the courts, not to try to ensure justice, but to punish your enemies and let your people that you like off. And so they try to bankrupt or get people to roll over or get them to stop exposing corruption. If you've paid attention to what's going on with Ken Paxton in Texas, this is exactly what's happened to him. And yet other people who do far worse things are never punished. All right, but what about our homes? Right? Don't we experience injustice in our homes too? If a parent disciplines one child and then lets another do anything and shows favoritism, that's injustice. That's not according to God's standard. In churches, if some members are held to a higher standard than others, and usually it's those who have money, who are wealthy, you know, popular, or have power or whatever, uh, they're shown partiality. Same, of course, happens in business. Employers treat certain employees with favoritism. Uh, social media, of course, blocks certain people and ideas, and yet they allow human trafficking and flash mob crimes to continue or whatever. 
The examples here are endless. But I'm giving you examples here as a contrast. The contrast is that God doesn't do any of those things. God never judges unfairly. He always judges according to truth and all the truth. He judges without bias. This is the principle that Paul brings into his argument. He touched on it in verse 2, and now this is the main point. And notice how he then develops the thought. As we come back to Romans 2, if you're not there yet, in verse uh, 7 he then says, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And so... There is eternal life. This is God's reward. Uh, It's granted to those who continuously strive for glory, honor, and immortality. Striving for things that glorify God, that honor him. Striving for things that are eternal. Focusing on God's glory and honor. Focusing on heavenly things, eternal blessings, and so forth. Those who bear good fruit in this way are rewarded with eternal life. They then, too, are glorified, and they are praised by God, and they will receive immortality, a glorified body and soul and with God forever. So if your goal is to seek for these things, and you're doing these good works, then the result is eternal life. This is God's standard. Then in verse 8, we have the opposite. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And so instead of seeking after glory, honor, and immortality, here now they're seeking after themselves. uh, Selfish ambition. Disobeying the truth rather than keeping it. Obeying unrighteousness or being persuaded to do what is unlawful. This is uh, the the exact opposite of verse 7. And so note the parallel thought in that way, antithetically. Um, And so those whose way of life seek after these ungodly things simply are going to receive God's anger and his wrath. The focus here is on the final judgment, though certainly there's the daily judgments too, as we talked about in chapter 1. And so his anger, his wrath, his indignation is just emphasizing simply God's mad. His fierce opposition to evil. All right, now look at verse 9. And you see how this then is very much like verse 8. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. All right, in one sense, he's just repeating verse 8. Every person who does evil will receive hardships and pain. Um, But notice the difference. You have God is angry, verse 8. Now here, verse 9, here's the result of that anger. Eternal suffering, tribulation, anguish. And then, maybe the most striking statement here in this whole section. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek or the Gentile. It's not just the Gentile who will receive this kind of uh, consequence, but the Jew too, and the Jew first. This is truly an amazing statement. But note the point. 
God's people, doesn't matter who they are, whether they're Gentiles, whether they're professing Christians today, or, or Jews, or anybody else, okay, God's people are not exempt from judgment. The same standard is used for everyone. That's the point he is making. The Jews will be judged along with the Gentiles. And the Jews will be judged first because they have God's law. And they know what they should do. Now we could interchange this language with Christian and non-Christian. For the professing Christian that pursues after evil things, he or she also will be judged. It's not just the non-Christian. Now note verse 10 then takes us back to verse 7. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so again, like verse 9 in one sense is a repetition of verse 8. This is in one sense just a repetition of verse 7. But note a couple of the differences. Every person who does good will receive glory, honor, and note peace now. And so um, in verse 7, they're pursuing these things, seeking these things. Now they're going to receive uh, these blessings. Okay, And so um, slightly different focus there, but overall the same point. And this addition of peace here is to say we are now at peace with God um, and and thus we will be with him forever. But again, note this shocking statement. This is true not only for the Jew, but even for the Gentile. And so uh, Paul is, you know, in one sense, shocking our socks off. But you see his point. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. And that takes us back to verse 6. The quotation from Psalm 62 and these other passages. God has the same standard for everyone. There's not one standard for the Jew and a different one for the Gentile. There's not one standard for the Christian and a different one for the non-Christian. We are all held to the same standard. We all will be judged according to what we do. God has no favorites. God takes no bribes. He is not swayed by special interests or anything else. This is Paul's point. Now, I've in many ways done this already with you, but if you look at your outline, I've shown for you here the chiasm. And in this chiasm, you'll see verses 6 to 11 go together, saying the same thing. And the, the first and last thing are really the most important point, right? God is impartial. That's the primary uh, message. Then in verses 7 to 10, you see those go together. And then verses 8 and 9. Okay. <clears throat> but you'll notice that the very center, not just verse 8 and verse 9, but the last two words of verse 8, And the first two words of verse 9 are the very middle of this chiasm. And so the last two words, God's angry with sin. The first two words of verse 9, this is the consequence of that anger, right? Tribulation, anguish, now and forever. And so the first words, God is uh, impartial. He's unbiased. He does everything according to truth. The middle words... 
We're all sinners, right? And this is the consequence. Okay. Now, let me mention this point here. I've, I've addressed it some already. Let me say a little bit more. When it says that we are going to be judged according to our works, it's not just outward. It's our thoughts and our words, too. But let's also then mention this. God does not judge us according to the letter of the law only. So, for example, let's think of the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal, right? Um, But, you know, maybe we've never stolen anything from Walmart or County Market or whatever. That's the letter of the law. But the overall spirit of the law is we shouldn't steal anything, including people's ideas or people's time. What about the ninth commandment? Right? You shall not bear false witness. The specific idea is don't lie when you're on the witness stand. Don't commit perjury. Okay? And probably everybody in here has kept the ninth commandment in that way, right? But what's the broader point? It's not just the letter of the law. But do you lie in general? Do you lie to yourself? If so, you've broken it. Same with the seventh commandment. Actual adultery versus sexual sins. Or we could look at the uh, earlier commands. You think of the second commandment. Probably none of us in here have actually fashioned an idol or bought one on the internet and put it up on our mantle and bowed down and worshipped it. But we all have idols of the mind and the heart. The point here is that God judges our outward acts and our thoughts and our motives, but he also, his standard isn't just outward. It isn't just the letter of the law. It's what governs every part of who we are. God's standard does not change for anyone, and God's standard is comprehensive. It governs everything. But if we limit that standard... We tend to think we're pretty good, don't we? Okay. <clears throat> All right, now let's come to the question that probably many of you have been thinking about here in this section. Does this mean we are judged by our works? Well, the answer has to be, well, yeah, of course, that's, that's what it says. But are we saved by works? That's the bigger question. Are we saved by works? Well, over the centuries, as you might expect, there are a variety of ways people have answered this question. What is Paul saying? And how does it fit with what he says in other places? Well, I think we have to answer the question by saying, yes, we are saved by works. Let's come back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This is the standard God gave at the very beginning. Genesis 2, and in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, it has far more to do with shovels and hoes and so forth. Remember, they didn't have any weeds then either at that moment. What this is communicating is not just 
gardening, but complete obedience. God put Adam in the garden and said, you obey me in every way. And so notice how this works itself out. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The broad point here simply is God is requiring perfect, thorough, complete, personal, individual obedience on Adam's part. And everyone else's too, including us. Now historically, this has sometimes been called the covenant of Adam. Some have called it the covenant of creation. In our circles, we've tended to call it the covenant of works to highlight this very principle. From the beginning, God said, if you obey perfectly, you're going to have eternal life. If you don't, then there will be a sure death. This is God's moral order. And this is what Paul is addressing. This moral order has not changed when God brought Israel out of Egypt. It has not changed when Christ came and lived and died and rose again. The standard is the same and always will be the same. We still have the covenant of works in force. And that's what Paul's telling us here in Romans 2. God's standard is this. And it applies to everyone. And so all of us must obey God perfectly. Paul's not saying anything new here. God's standard is this. Obey him and you will receive eternal life. In Matthew chapter 19, let me read this here for us briefly. These are Jesus' words. To the rich young ruler, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Note the standard, right? You do something to receive eternal life. So he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Jesus said, you keep these, you'll have eternal life. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Do you see how the standard was the letter of the law for this man? It was external for this man. And so Jesus then presses and answers this question. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus' answer addresses two things. First of all, it addresses the idea of coveting and greed. This guy had all these possessions and so... Right? Notice he didn't list the 10th the commandment in these things here. In verse, uh, it's actually verse 18. But then he's also addressing the issue of idolatry. Okay? The first and second commandments especially. This man's idol, his God, his love and life were the things that he had. 
And so Jesus here is pressing this point. And he is saying, look, you have not kept all the commands. You have not been perfect. But if you had been perfect, you would have eternal life. The standard is the same. This man doesn't keep the standard. Even though he's a good person, he looked good on the outside. Everybody would say, yeah, he's great. And so the good people don't keep God's standard. The obvious sinners obviously don't keep God's standard. But no one has, and no one ever will. Now let me get ahead here in Paul's argument a little bit. That's his ultimate point by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 20. No one keeps the standard. Not Jew, not Gentile, not anyone. But his point here in chapter 2 is, this is the standard. And so don't do away with Paul's point by trying to say, well, Paul's, he doesn't mean that we're saved by our works. And then try to explain away his point. Paul says, no, we are saved by works. Even Jesus says that. Now, let me get ahead in Paul's argument one more step. And that next step is only one man has kept the law perfectly, and that, of course, is Jesus. We are saved by works, just not our works. We are saved by his works in our place if we trust in him. But again, I'm getting ahead of things. His point here is this is the standard. Perfect obedience is required to go to heaven. And so thus, there are only two options, either those who obey and receive that life and those who don't, who receive or at least deserve that judgment. You know, when we come before a standard, our tendency, of course, is either to feel guilty or to try to manipulate the standard to make ourselves feel better. And Paul is saying, no, you can't do that. And when we become, come before the standard of God and we hear it for what it is, it humbles us, doesn't it? It reminds us of our failure. It shows us our failure. It leads us, hopefully, to repentance and trusting in God. Unfortunately, of course, our, our uh, tendency is to change the standard and to somehow think God has changed the standard for me, and then we end up trusting ourselves. But as I've said a few times now, Paul is determined to not allow us to find any hope in ourselves. And by reminding us of this standard, it helps in that process. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, don't manipulate them to feel better about yourself. Read them and see yourself for who you are. And may this then turn you to Christ. Certainly in our justification, but even in our sanctification. All right. Well, we'll continue with his argument, Lord willing, next time in verse 12. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, again for your word. 
and this, uh, you might say, broad word that we have seen here today, found in so many passages. Um, We praise you, Lord, that you are just, that you do everything according to truth and to full knowledge. We are thankful, Lord, that you've given us a standard based on your character And since you do not change, your standard does not change. And we thank you for this. But Lord, may we then hear the message of your standard. And that standard to sinners is, (laughs) you deserve judgment. Lord, help us to hear this message and not to explain it away or try to redefine it in some way. But may it humble us that we might turn to you. In faith, repentance. And so we pray then um, for your mercies in this way. And we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. 